0: Hi, welcome to the first episode of Scratching the Surface, I'm Jared Fuller and this is my brand new podcast about the intersection of design criticism and practice. I am so excited and honored to have Rob Giampietro on as my first guest today. Rob is a designer and writer and is currently the creative lead for Google Design in New York. He also teaches at RISD, does a lot of writing and uh, recently spent some time in Rome at the American Academy. And Rob's work has meant a lot to me personally, which is why I'm really excited that he's my first guest. His blog, Lined and Unlined, was very influential to me when I was in college. I was really inspired by how he thought about design and how he wrote about it, and really sought to have a career that blended design and writing like his had. Uh, When I was in New York in June, I visited Rob at Google's New York office to talk to him about this hybrid career as a designer and a writer. Uh, We also talked about how he sees his work on Google's material design as a critical activity. We talked about design's responsibility within culture and uh, the type of design writing that he'd like to see more of. Uh, Rob someone I always enjoy hearing from and I think that this was a great conversation that I know I got a lot out of and I think is really a good way to start the podcast. So here it is. This is my interview with Rob G. M. Petro. I kind of came to graphic design when I was, I think, like a sophomore in high school, like 15, 12, 15 years ago Mm -hmm. now, suburban Pennsylvania, had like never met a graphic designer before. And so, This was like 2003, 2004. Yeah. It was kind of like start of design blogs. And kind of like that was when all this stuff was kind of getting popular. And so that was like my first intro into graphic design culture. Yeah. And so I saw designers as these people who were these kind of like intellectuals who were always writing about what they were doing and you know, making incredible work and then writing about what it meant and what it meant in the world. And, and I was, I just like ate all of that up, <laughs> like as a, you know, 14, 15 year old kid. Yeah. And you were one of those people lined and unlined, And what's interesting, I was thinking about this when I was on the subway here is that for a long time, I knew you as a writer before I had ever seen any of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it got me thinking for you, like what, what actually came first? Like, do you think of yourself as a designer first, or a writer first, and then also like
1: which one came first kind of in the timeline of your life? Of my, of my life? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think um, I think I was thinking a lot about design as something I wanted to do with my life first. Um, I, my aunt is a graphic designer in New York, so she was someone that like when I was like a teenager was really kind of like, I thought she was cool, I like yeah. liked her. She had a solo practice. She still does, um, and like you know, made made little print projects for clients, and would send me little mock-ups of things. And would she used she had Quark Express really early on, and, yeah. and would send me letters with different typefaces, and be like, Do you know which typeface this is? And and then I mean, I grew up in Minneapolis, so I was my dad worked for Target, so Target oh, was a yeah. you know emerging in its design consciousness um, at the time he was working there, and. I, the Walker Art Center was was around and was was sort of a really amazing place for like, also something that was talking about design, as a thing, um, maybe before a lot of people were. Um, so I, like, I think at the same age as you, I was I was like really interested in design and in spending a life in design. Just, yeah. When I got to college, um, I what I was a little bit like, and and I guess within within high school and stuff, I was like the person that made the like the school dance posters and the like, oh, right, right, like I was yeah. the I was the resident yeah. person which was sort of somewhere between and I look back on it now I was like I like tech I'm kind of like my family tech support guy you know yeah, like I, yeah, I liked yeah. I liked computers and the, that aspect of design actually and I was really intrigued by that I mean the moment I think I decided I wanted to be a graphic designer was like when I saw Matthew Carter's typeface Walker which oh, is like very much yeah. a, aware of itself as a digital thing, yeah. Um, and and like that was the first moment where design sort of revealed itself to me as being this really rich thing uh, that I wanted to spend more time thinking about and, and, and getting better at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so I, when when I when I, when I got to college, it was like you know I went to Yale and it was a it was a place that valued writing a lot. And I had and I had in you know in high school and stuff always loved to read and write and been a reader. Right. Yeah, and and sort of loved thinking about reading and these kinds of things and right. meta meta narratives and yeah,
0: we were the same
1: kid. <laughs> yeah, basically <laughs> I was that that kid. Yeah, and uh, and and so I actually started off at, at Yale as a literature major, and I was I was um, pretty far down that path, but was taking all the design classes I could, um, without declaring myself right. as an art major. And then junior year, I kind of had this this moment where I realized that um, I wasn't going to get any better as a designer if I didn't know how to paint and draw and take photographs and make films and do all these other things and enter all these other discourses um, in order to like bring that back into my practice and into my work. So to do that required being like a real art major yeah, and, and like maybe just like that i Felt like I'd drawn everything I could from literature at that point, and, and actually, like what I really wanted to do was be a really good designer. Um, so, so like how? I'm trying to think how to ask. Like,
0: I don't know if I've ever talked to somebody deeply about uh, who was a literature major, but were were you doing a lot of writing kind of at that time? Totally. Yeah. While you were taking all these art classes, also, and you were kind of like. Yeah, totally. Like I mean, uh, co-
1: and they were two kind of separate things, and you made this decision. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I was. I mean, a great example. Like, you know, I was. You know, reading. I took a modern poetry class. Uh, we read Wallace Stevens, and I was like writing about Martin Heidegger's Being in Time and how it related to thirteen oh, wow. ways of looking at a blackbird or something like that. I did a, I did a really important paper for me on on the Limey and North by oh, Northwest, yeah. Yeah. which which kind of is, is online yeah. and online. Yeah, um, so some of, and I've actually like, I think a lot of people like think about their writing in college as like not counting, yeah. or whatever. But like I think a lot of the things that have been important to me as a critic has, have been to not draw lines around when I'm writing and when I'm not writing. Like I think of note taking as writing. I think of transcription as writing. Um, like. You know, when I was in Rome, I was like, I would go to lectures and I would, I would actually like take notes on the lecture and then I would just paste part of my notes into the document that I was working on, the essays that I was working on while I was there. Oh, interesting. So there was a very fluid like sense of like, and I think the same was true of like learning to make films, like meant writing about films so that I could learn to make films. And um, the moment where that really clicked into place for me was that, was something that Ellen had written about Neuland. Um, and Lethos as like this kind of stereotypography and i was captivated by that and, and, and curious yeah. to understand that and i was there through the literature department i was aware of the fact that there was this amazing post-colonial scholar named paul gilroy um, who's actually also someone that paul elliman knows who was like uh, oh, an weird. advisor of mine at yale at the time and paul gilroy he and i wanted wanted to like explore this thing about sort of typefaces that connote blackness or otherness um, and yet, and how they came to be read that way. I mean, Rudolf Koch designed Neuland for like biblical broadsides in Germany. How did that become like sort of the thing that they use for like, you know, for like, like Harlem printing. Right, right. How does that, what is that progression? It seemed like a really interesting story. And so I felt like Paul Gilroy gave me a lot of, ideas about like what the diaspora is and, and these literary ideas that could migrate into design discourse and so that was a really important. I remember uh, a project that I did for Hank Van Assen who's a, a, a kind of like um, introductory design teacher at Yale and he he encouraged us to pick a typeface and typeset something that we had written for another class. in. In that typeface and sort of explore it, and right. um, you know, I had written this paper for Paul Gilroy, and I decided to explore it, uh, and and that was this moment of synthesis for me where design and literature were like really coming together on the page, like holistically. So,
0: so so it started. You were still in school when this happened, and you were. Was this the first time that you would say that you were like
1: writing about design or writing about kind of design? Culture. I think so. Yeah, I, I guess I feel like I feel like the um, like I always loved fonts, and I always felt like um, I had this weird ability, like it was like a party trick to know oh, yeah. what font yeah. things were, and I was very very sensitive to that. And so like I would just it was like people would like play the license plate game and yeah. be like, oh that's Arkansas, yeah. like I would be like, oh that's Neuland, or like <laughs> oh that's Bodoni or you know, and I just like loved that I could recognize that. It would like really give me yeah. pleasure. And so um, I think I was looking for a way to write about, to express that pleasure in writing. And I think El- oh, the I questions see. I had about Ellen's observation were very foundational to like, giving me permission to right. like, explore that and think, right. think more about like, why that typeface had come to mean that in culture. Yeah, um, And I think, I mean, it's actually like now that, I'm, that I work here at Google, it's like I see similar things about tech and how tech arrives in culture and what the cultural meaning of that is um and that's actually like a story that's kind of unfolding right. right now and i think something that we have to like keep very close awareness of how it what the chapters are and how it right. progresses right um but maybe i'm getting i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> but, but, i mean that
0: like like i kind of mentioned before we started recording i read school days and we are getting ahead of ourselves but I, this is kind of relevant is, is and you were talking about the program era and the um kind of like reflexive moment of kind of critiquing and working at the same time, and instead of um, uh, reflexively modern is, is, was the mm. term that mm-hmm. you used. And I feel like that that is an important discourse that you were talking about it with tech right now, but I feel like that's kind of the same thing uh, that design is going through right now also. And, and that's kind of why I'm even thinking about what do we need critics for? And, and why I think material design especially, kind of fits into that because I think from an outsider that kind of is simultaneously putting new interaction models into the world while also kind of strangely critiquing them. Yeah. Um, Which, I
1: I don't know what to do with that, but I think that that's
0: something that's interesting that's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean I think, um, so, the thing I've been like thinking about a lot in terms of our work so one thing you can't ignore about Google is is the scale of the scale of the things that we do, mm-hmm. and I think that's actually what changes them and makes them really yeah. interesting and and different from maybe similar efforts. Um, and you know, you think about the scale of the usage of Material Design. I mean, it's you know, yeah. there's a, there's like a million apps in the Play Store that use Material Design components. I mean, staggering yeah. staggering yeah. numbers of things. And so. I've been thinking a lot about the case study program um, in the '50s that was really spun up by um, Art and Architecture magazine, and they kind of they kind of had this movement right where it was like go to you know use off the shelf components oh right um, build your house mm-hmm. um, you know it was popularized by a magazine they did these sort of proof of concepts homes yeah um, yeah it was mostly mediated actually by magazine writers and critics but then with the help of architects and builders and right. you know after a certain after the program hit a, it had a name too as the case study program yeah. like the material design system but then after it hit a certain scale it actually just became how one built one's house in the 50s and the user base for people that needed houses was in the billions right so right. you kind of have that moment where you found a problem that's a problem that is a significant scale and you need to introduce new ideas theoretical ideas in and, and, yeah. and also yeah. equip people to build with those ideas, um, and and so I see them as being very coherent, very similar. Yeah. Um, and and I think that the way we approach, you know, you know, we'll talk about material design for a long time here, but but there may be a moment where material design just becomes design, um, and right. where 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 the, the, the case study program simply becomes the mid century, a right. uh, mid century yeah. home, you know, That's it's It's just yeah. simply a design of its time. And it's not, and a method of building, like to right. sort of quote Christopher Alexander a little bit, you know, yeah. sort of like this way of building. Yeah. So, um, so I mean, I think that's that's like for me, a, like a really rich area right now is like anything where you have, you you have people that are needing to DIY or needing to needing to transfer design. You know, um, Terry de I talk about this in my essay. But he talks about this idea of transmission of yeah. of how is knowledge like passed on, right? And, uh, and I feel like a material design system is really a transmission problem it's how do we get this, the the components to you how do we teach you how to use them right how do you tell us how to break them right and how to right. and how to, how to how to how to how to extend them and and, and dimensionalize them yeah. um, and and you know how does that create a richer and more accessible web and, and more accessible app ecosystem you know so yeah, yeah. And
0: this, I mean it's almost Blurring that line between critic and designer in many ways, also where those those two actions, which you could view as separate, um, come together. Yeah. Where the this I might be stretching this a bit, but it's where like the design becomes a critical activity, in and of itself, just by putting it out there and seeing how people respond to it and build off of it.
1: Yeah. Well, like I think you know, the alternative. I mean, I think you should, I think design is always a critical activity. There's always a yeah. thesis. Where you're saying kind of like this is insufficient, or this is right. this is not correct, or the form of this is poor, or yeah. or you know, or there's a new need that's arisen in the world and design needs to rise to address it. Right. You know, so I don't think that there's a the only other scenario I can imagine in terms of argument is to, is to commodify design and simply say it's a thing that you can go and you know, and I think that in a way like that you you know it's just like this is like thing that like just people make more of right um and i think there is an aspect of design that is that doesn't always have to be purposeful but i think regardless of regardless of that it it is always critical yeah, always sort of positing a point of view.
0: I've been, I I think a lot about Stuart Brand's How Buildings Learn, and he opens up the beginning of that book talking about how the word building is both a noun and a verb. It's mm. the action of building something, and then the finished product is also a building. Yeah, And I, I like to replace building with design there, because I think I kind of grew up using design as a noun, saying like, this is my design, like look at this design that mm-hmm. I made, mm-hmm. but the that when you flip it to becoming a verb, that's where like the work happens and that's where it's actually interesting is, is in that process of designing versus the finished product. And yeah. I think that's where this kind of idea of like this critical activity and all of this stuff kind of fits in where the finished product is just the natural output of kind of all that research. And that's also what you talk about in school days with research and design thinking, all of that is kind of the process part.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, and I think that that's particularly true. I mean, it's you know one of the frustrating things about being a digital d- designer sometimes can be that you know there's not this kind of final artifact the way that like like you can make yeah. you can look at the book on the shelf twenty years later and it maintains its form and right. the user experience of that book is c- totally consistent yeah. for all users. Yeah. You know, and I think I think you know maybe maybe that that's a downside of of, of kind of canonization yeah. of digital design and I've, I've written about this too but I think mm-hmm. the, the upside is that it actually literalizes what you're talking about yeah. where everything is kind of just a version of the last thing yeah. um and so it's it's actually like a continuous process that never really stops yeah and I I guess I guess I feel like Particularly being here, like there is there isn't a deliverable and there isn't a client and there isn't an end of the contract. Like everything we do at yeah. Google, we have to keep maintaining it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what's incredible about working with engineers is like everything we do here, you have to keep working on it. You have to keep fixing it. There are you there are bugs. There are yeah. there are new technologies that could help the users use that product better. And so it's just they just they just keep growing. They're very organic in that way.
0: I went last weekend I went to the Met's unfinished show and I kept thinking about that kind of cliche um, that we would kind of always throw around when I was at Facebook is that a website's never launched, or a website's never finished, it's only launched. And that even after it launches, there's bug fixes and it's like, you know, where does, when is something to find as finished? And looking at all these paintings uh, at the Met and I just got to thinking about that idea because there were so many that looked. They were hanging on the wall, and they looked like they were finished paintings and they were gorgeous. Um, but the artist, for some reason, has said that they weren't finished, mm. and that that kind of definition is even very, very flexible. Yeah, and it's yeah. made very apparent when you're working digitally. Where I, think, no I, mean, I think the, this
1: is where, like, I think the Eameses are very interesting because mm-hmm. they're constantly talking about this is a sketch for a thing or this is a prototype of a thing, yeah. and they're very public yeah. with their work in progressness. Um, and I, and I really like, I feel like that's again, like consistent with someone who's working really out on the edges of what they know how to do and into, into things that they, they don't know how right. to do, but they're just, they're just, yeah. they're jumping into that right anyway. And I think, I think a lot of like, you know, I mean, each, each art biennale is sort of a reaction to the previous one. And I think in a, in intellectual programs unfold in that same sort of. Uh, that same sort of iterative and reactive po- yeah. um, sort of progression so I think like this year's span will be um, will be sort of in a way like a reaction to last year's and sort of building on it and tweaking it and um, and sort of reacting to the places it yeah. will be and, and all of that kind of stuff as well so but like last year was very very hard because we kind of had to figure out what this thing was and what our position was and how we could give people a platform to Talk to us about their positions in relationship to that. Um, do you th- do you see your role
0: at, here at Google and and kind of the span conference and everything that was kind of around that the reader, which I got a copy of and and like read through it and was just kind of amazed that it just seemed to like go against the kind of cliches of of a technology company and how they think about design. It was very uh, kind of rich in content and uh, very. For lack of a better word, critical and thoughtful, um, and I thought I watched all the videos from this the span New York conference, and all of those talks are very deep, and there was a lot of uh, kind of interesting topics there. And like, do you see your role here, or like, does Google have a responsibility to provide a place for that discourse for designers kind of working in this space, and then also? You know kind of putting your point of view in that discourse yeah
1: i mean i think we definitely have a responsibility i mean whether we want to or not we make culture yeah you know i mean, <laughs> I, mean I mean we might not be something that we that, that that companies like us have always been aware of but i think i think we are now we are very much aware of it and i'm very much aware of it and i think we have a i think because we make culture we have a cultural responsibility to make good culture uh, you know <laughs> right. uh yeah. and and so i think you know we also have, we're blessed with in being able to speak to the design community an incredibly rich and engaged community that is passionate and smart and you know getting all kinds of interesting content thrown at it all the time and it's discriminating about what it wants to care about and so right. you better bring your A game right, right. And, and and engage it fully if you want to build a bridge otherwise the risk is that you actually just fall flat and they're sort of like you think this is cool but it's really not yeah um, and so you know I, I just I just sort of tried to try to steer with the team of people that were working on it with me to like really pull no punches and and, and lead with our best Ideas around what what we think the digital world should be talking about in terms of co- these conversations right. around design and technology, right. and for me, like last year was very important because we had a real theme, kind of latent, but now in my mind much more manifest in retrospect, of of history. Because I think tech can often feel strangely ahistorical or perpetually new. Uh, that it's, uh, and I think yeah. I think when you're an engineer and you're building something for the first time. There's this kind of exciting thing of breaking through and creating new knowledge, and right. that sort of spirit, which is very motivating, um, motivates a lot of the discourse of tech. And I think for design, there's this really, really important need to connect to a tradition, and to feel, yeah. Yeah. To feel that you're part of, a, of an evolution of form, rather than a, sort of always having this radical break. Right. when in reality there's not that many radical breaks in form making actually like there yeah. it's very cyclical yeah and so I think I just wanted to see I, I wanted to see us be honest about that and, and, and I think um, you know That's and I, I was looking for I was looking for narratives from the world of tech that felt like they would resonate with the world of design and in like things like John Harwood's book or yeah. Fernari's work yeah. on Olivetti like I found, people that could help narrate that history in a way that I was convinced by yeah. and that I thought we should share. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Um, I, wanna, I wanna come back a little bit to your writing and kind of, you mentioned kind of having that moment when you were at Yale and then you graduated. And so I'm curious, like once you were kind of out in the quote real world, how did you see your practice kind of like immediately as this person who had this hybrid Uh, design literature, and you were kind of designing and writing. How did that influence what kind of work you did, the writing
1: that you were doing, the projects you were taking on? Yeah, totally. No, well, it never really left me. Like, so, I mean, when I was at Yale, I designed the Yale Literary Magazine, uh, and I was, like, buddies with, like, the poets and the novelists and stuff, and I would go to the, I would get to vote on what was in the literary magazine. There were also, like, artists, in the literary magazine that became very important to me, like Laurel Nakadate is a really important contemporary photographer, and she was a colleague on the literary magazine, oh. and a, you know, and so, um, so I think literature like remained important for me at Yale. And then when I graduated, I was really just very eager to like be a designer and get to keep designing things. But I loved I loved the literary magazine as a project. And actually, my senior project at Yale was actually kind of a, a a non-literary literary magazine it was a it was a magazine of of staff uh, or i'm sorry of um pr- professors unpublished writing oh interesting and so it was like it huh. was like papers that they that, that pr- professors of mine had had or, or other or i had heard professors had written that they weren't able to publish for various reasons so I had a p- paper about like, an electrical engineer who um, fixed a Duchamp sculpture for the Yale University Art Gallery. That's so interesting. And like, he, couldn't, he did a whole thing around the circuit board of this machine that Duchamp has created and what he learned about fixing it, and yeah. he was unable to publish it, and I just wanted to give him like, a platform to right. do that. And so, um, so, you know, enjoyed working with text, enjoyed thinking about culture, and found myself in the studio of Bill Drantel and Jessica Halfan, which was called Winterhouse. Um, and, you know, Design Observer was not yet started, right. but it was just about to start. Um, and they were working with lots of literary clients. So, like, Susan Sontag was one of our clients. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, we had like these amazing people coming through. Bill was a book collector, had an unbelievable personal library, was a member of the Gwalior Club in New York. Jessica's father also a member of the Gallier Club in New York, the Book Collecting Club, Oh wow! so like an extremely like literary place, Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, I was in upstate Connecticut, and I was like a single guide right out of college, so I didn't have a lot to do, <laughs> right. uh, yeah. so I basically like designed all the time, which was sort of grad school for me, like where you never yeah. go home, and you sleep, you know, you sort of sleep at your desk, and right, but you know, Bill would have us, make us dinner or whatever, and we would hang out and we would talk about ideas. And I think there was one time when I was talking to him about defaults oh, yeah. and how I thought that like, it was really interesting. It'd be really interesting to try to design a book or something where you didn't override any of quarks, which we would use at the time, but like quarks, yeah, yeah, like de- yeah. system <laughs> defaults, and you just, you just were forced to design within the defaults that you know, and that I was seeing more and more people sort of approaching this idea in different right. ways and you know he, he helped me dimensionalize it and was you know i knew about contemporary or conceptual art but he was sort of like comparing them and yeah. we were talking about how they were different and how they were similar and at a certain point he was like you know you should write you should write about this and um he said i'll introduce you to rudy vanderlands and which was amazing because emma yeah. gray was very important to me yeah. Uh, and I, and, and he's like, and, and maybe Rudy will be interested in this idea. And I, so he, he introduced me to Rudy and I talked, told him about a conversation with Bill and he said, let's do an interview, you know? And that was, that was an amazing, I didn't really understand yeah. what was going on in that moment. I just kind of had a, had a hunch right. and Rudy was curious cause they had done some magazines, uh, emigre magazines around kind of like what's going, what's next, and yeah. they, they had a thing called like that was then and this is now and what's next, and to go back to the kind of conversation we were, we were having about reflexive modernity, I think that like I was really interested in what I saw as kind of like this movement back to the form formal sort of formal ideas of modernism, but but in a new time right. with a new awareness, right. and so like postmodernism sort of like, disrupted modernism and critiqued right. it and really kind of had a whole different approach and, and was really a reaction to it. But then I thought, I thought in a weird way that designers didn't think they wanted to flush modernism down the toilet completely. Like, they really... Yeah. There were things about modernism that they needed to revisit. Right. They just needed to revisit them with, like, full awareness of, of the present. And so I wasn't as conscious of, of, uh, you know, of Ulrich Beck and the people that I yeah. wrote about in school days at the time, it was really helpful to find them through Mark McGirl's work. Um, uh-huh. But uh, but I definitely like was was sort of asking similar questions in, in the Default yeah. Systems essay, so yeah, or the Default yeah. Systems interview. I don't know anything about really what you did in Rome. I saw a talk, uh, a
0: video of a talk that you did where you did a reading from it. Yeah. Um, and it sounded, and I, I had read your kind of proposal that you had posted before. Uh, and those seemed kind of different. And so I'm curious just what, one, why why were you interested in, in kind of doing that? And then how has how that experience kind of, do you think kind of filtered back into the work now that it's kind of done and what are you still doing?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, so That was like four questions. No, that's one. great. I, I, can, I, can, I think I can put them together. So um, I was interested in going to Rome for a lot of reasons. Um, I, was, I feel like I've spent my entire career in New York and I wanted a new context to think about. Um, Rome seemed like they'd been designing things for a lot longer and uh, I thought that was actually really, really important to, to be in that time scale and in, and in a place that was unfamiliar that I could have new reactions to yeah. and, and <clears throat> in a place like the American Academy that was actually where there were a lot of people around who had different perspectives on where we were and, right. and and so you know I was there with archaeologists and historians and people that were conservationists and historical preservationists and architects and composers and all these different people who had different perspectives on the city. Um, and in terms of what I did there I went there hoping to have a podcast very much like this and I but I, I wanted it to be about walking and so I was going to do this series of walking interviews and I kind of started off on that track and was really unhappy with the results <clears throat> and I think probably could have gotten them to be something that was better, but quickly found that I what I really wanted to do was do the walking interviews but then return to them and write about them. Mm, yeah. um, and that in a way like I kind That's of and I, I I wrote about this in the essay, got very meta, but like that that you know, that reading a text can be like taking a walk and that that, that the way an essay unfolds can actually be very associative, much like the process of wandering through a city. And I mean, I'm not the first person to have right. this this idea, yeah. but I think I wanted to have my own individual version of it. And, and you know, the idea to go to Rome came about when I was at the McDowell colony um, doing oh, yeah. a writer's residency. And I would take these walks every day um, on the grounds, which are beautiful. Uh, and There's like six miles of trails or something. Oh, wow. And then I would get back to my studio and I would write a little bit about what I was thinking about at the time. And it just felt like I was in a really good place from, as a writer at that moment. Yeah. And so I felt like, oh, well, the perfect thing to do would be to, to but I, I often I felt a little isolated there sometimes because it's very, you know, you're really by yourself. Right. So I was like, the, the perfect project would be walking and social interaction yeah. and mm-hmm. kind of mobility and movement and these things that are very, that I was starting to get more and more interested in technology and interaction. And the way that your body moves through space, the way that it activates new relationships with the built environment. Um, and then, you know, I, I felt like podcasts were like, again, like where design criticism was starting to become really interesting, like yeah. things like 99% Invisible, yep. were kind of, kind of feel like the emigres of now. Yeah, um, interesting. And, you know, because they're not, there's no visual component to them, they actually invite deeper, some, sometimes a deeper connection. Right. Um, they're very intimate, they're in your ear, they're like, you know, yeah. and, and all yep. this stuff. So, so it was just, I, that all just kind of went in the hopper
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: um, and I went to Rome, with just a tremendous curiosity and i think the other thing that was i'm italian american and i'm right. curious about my background and right. who i am and i felt like i was going to be the body of this essay i was going to be the agent of this essay right. it needed to have a personal component and rome would catalyze that kind of personal component so you know really what i did there was i just i walked all over the place i learned I said yes to everything. I learned a ton. I went on things I never planned to do, and then I and then I, I try to think about what it all meant when I got home at night and write about it and slowly cobble that into a thing that made sense. And I'm still doing that. Is okay. And so you know, there's about thirty thousand words of of new writing that came out of Rome. And and I think
0: for one this kind of one essay? Is, yes. Is, okay.
1: Well, triangulation, and, and then it's starting to, but it's starting to break up into new essays and maybe chapters, and oh, I don't know. Okay. Kind of like it's, I'm in the middle of it, um, but I think that, and it might be something that takes a while because I'm kind of in the middle of it without as much time as I had in my Right, right. Uh, And And also this experience is sort of reflecting and changing back what I right. learned there. Right, yeah. um, But I think that like, uh the reason I I I often like finish something and I'm very excited to share it on my website and I felt like this was a project where the whole thing was about slowness and sustained sustained Mm -hmm. argumentation and I like I I, when I was at McDowell I really wanted to write something long like I felt like I for 10 years I'd written things that were of short to intermediate length right and interesting I think as a as a writer you just want to you know you just want to just like a swimmer or something you want to sustain right you sustain this thing longer and longer to see how yeah you, if you could find a topic that would be rich enough yeah. which ultimately has to be yourself and you know right. if you could if you could if you could make a structure that would be compelling and flexible enough to like hold you through that whole process and so um, you know i just wanted to be really patient i think rome invokes a kind of patience and yeah. uh, and i am just holding on to writing the the way the best way that seemed to share it has been just in these sort of reading fragments of it in public and just sort of getting feedback on on them kind of like a workshop or something like that do do you have any sense of how that
0: i mean we talked about something being finished earlier is this something that is just going to kind of keep going or do you have a sense of its final form i think
1: it will i think it will get released and i and i want i really want that and i think it's just more like a question of um how nascent is the draft like is it is it i could release what i have now but i don't i feel like somehow i would be giving away an opportunity to keep exploring it and i want i don't know that i'm quite ready to do that yet so
0: is it um how related is it to kind of your design
1: work and your design practice or does it feel like something um you know i think i think it's it's I think Rome is like almost like a, a, a dream space in in a way right now okay. like it's like a place to escape and um and and think about time in a really like long-term sense. Oh, um, okay. and it's also like I can keep rewalking and re and having new experiences oh, within yeah. the experiences I had there, you know. Interesting. So like going to the first Montessori school or oh, yeah. like you know going to Mussolini's gym and like you know right. thinking about what these how, how these spaces connect to the thing that the restaurant down the street that's immediately nearby them or, right. the, or the like you know artifacts that are buried underneath them and how walking over these things uh, and your yeah. body connects them in time like I think that's just that's like a really that's actually just like pure writing for me like it's, yeah. it's really just dispersing facts in right. order right. and trying to make them resonate and be compelling and connect to one another um, and so yeah so i think i escape into the i escape into the the building of that uh sometimes but i think you know rome was an extremely technological space you know like the Colosseum is a mm, is an incredible yeah. device for like aligning a, you know like someone at the american academy sort of quipped to me that like the coliseum got all roman citizens to face the same direction You know, and so like it's this kind of like building that operates as a kind of political device, right? Um, And like you know, you see design everywhere. You look there, and so and I think a lot about kind of technological culture in Rome, uh, and and that it it kind of it might make writing that would live longer than the than the 5 yeah. minute logo review right like because it's about something that's been around for 2000 years and so you can actually that's interesting you can engage it in a very different way yeah. you know it's I super slow it's like yeah. maximally slow we're starting to get short on time so i want to ask you a couple kind okay. of quick
0: questions sure. to start wrapping it up um i know like when you graduated and you mentioned Demigre and and you've written for dot 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 and there was kind of it's easy for me as someone who kind of just missed the kind of '90s, early 2000s design culture. I kind of like came into this at the end to look at that as like uh, with like rose tinted glasses and see it as like this kind of amazing time to be a graphic designer. There's the you know desktop publishing, and then there was all this critical activity, um, and then to look at kind of the design culture that I work in and feel like that kind of excitement is missing or lacking. Um, I was curious as someone who kind of came up in that time and and was a voice in many ways of that time, how do you, what differences or similarities do you see between that kind of critical culture that is easy to kind of look back at as this kind of golden age and now, and like what's missing or what do we have now that, you know. didn't have that
1: yeah i mean i think i think one of the things is that you know and i wrote this is uh, i gave a talk at the new museum for their for their like their generational um show about generations in design and one of the things that i i talked about in that in that essay or that talk was the idea of that modernism kind of operated at a a mass scale and postmodern. Act operated at a more individualized scale. You know, mm. people were people were designers became authors because design became individualized and design moved to the, to the academy to be able to support that individual right. agency and in action as a as an act as a cultural actor. And so I think that um, you know that is that is why some partly why some of that discourse became so rich yeah. is that, that that people were people were academics and That's and, and that was the, that was what designers were valuing. Mm. In that kind of postmodern moment yeah Um, I think I think it's also um, I don't know I think I think it it was also a smaller group of people yeah and and design again like this is where scale matters you know design has 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 gotten much much larger right uh, in scale and so there are many design cultures now and um, yeah. Again, this is where I think like Ulrich Beck is an important thinker, where they writes about these ideas of individualization that in in a in a kind of society in the, in a reflexively modern society or networked society, people have are not living in family units anymore. There is no mass culture. There's only sort of individualized right. narratives of the self that ha- have to get revealed right. in real time right. and and explained. And so a lot of what uh, what. That design critics are needing to do right now is actually just negotiate and navigate for everyone. Right. How mm-hmm. to find yeah. design, where to, where, and yeah. everyone's sort of telling their own story about it. you know? Right. Um, and so I think right. some of the cohesion that comes from, from po- the postmodern times is not there. There's not that kind of central critical class yeah. that there was before. Yeah. Um, I also, there's just like also like a lot more talk Right. Uh, I mean you know I think it's your project will be interesting because it's like I think I think you want to find valuable talk and I celebrate that but there's definitely a lot more there's a lot more talk than there was yeah when I was got out of school I mean it's right there's a ton more people talking about design I think it's just a question of like what do we need them to talk about exactly um, yeah so, yeah
0: yeah a little more um, I last week did a workshop at Triple Canopy talking about publication and and Kind of everything around that distribution, publics kind of things like that and their kind of original motto was they wanted to slow down the internet mm-hmm. and I I don't know there was something about that that really resonated with me with this project in that um, I think a lot of like design criticism could be slowed down a little bit instead of these kind of like hot takes that are um, I mean I'm sure you are familiar with it just with, like, the Google Mark. Yeah, yeah, redesign. totally. It was, like, totally. immediately everybody suddenly had an opinion on that. And now we're, what, six months, ten months away. And it's, like, well, now would actually be a good time to talk about it. But <laughs> it's, like, settled in. And now it's, like, in the world. Yeah, no, I
1: generally don't. I mean, I, I, I admire people like Armin who can, who can do those kind of very immediate takes on things. Um, but I think as a critic and as a designer, it often takes me a while to know what I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so and I think Michael Beirut did you know, you should really you know, you'll talk to him about his design as a spectator sport. Yeah. I really do think that this is that, that those sort of things are uh, for designers are entertainment. Uh, not for cult not for society. Yeah. I think for businesses that do them, they're actually very critical problems that they're trying to solve within a competitive marketplace. And you know, they, they they feel that this approach will help them with that problem, right. you know. Um, but I think I think for designers, you know, everybody has their own perspective. You yeah. know? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and, and I think the, the kind of the kind of pleasure of, of of not being in the hot seat but being in the critic's seat is 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 really tempting right. Right. And, and, and really enticing.
0: I I love also it, it just makes me feel really good that you say that it takes you a while to kind of figure out what your opinion is, because I, I definitely feel that way. And then it also takes me I'm a very slow writer um, and so I feel like by the time I get this thing out
1: it's gonna be old news or whatever like that. Um, Do you write every day? Uh, I've gone through periods in my life where I do. I don't at the moment. Uh, I feel like I think out loud a lot and and I think teaching actually helps me write because I say things and then I'm like wait. That was interesting. Like, you know, or or students say things to me, and and the same thing happens here all the time. I mean, I feel like, you know, I feel like when I here, I'm constantly meeting people and just being like, wow, I never thought about that before. You know, like just, just people really open my mind here about things I never thought about, and uh, and there's just so many people with different knowledge bases that help me understand. Design better and tech better, um, and and so yeah. I, th- I, th- I mean, I, I I think it's when I was when I was um, in between GMP Trent Smith and Project Projects, I definitely like made a practice of writing every day, and I think a lot of essays came out of that period. Um, and then you know over time, I feel like Ellen gave me advice at one point that she had like two or three big essays in her a year, and yeah. to just pace myself and right. and stay in the game long. Like and I think actually that's where. Like, I don't feel the need to comment on everything that happens. I actually would rather let it linger and then determine if it's sort of nagging at me. Right. You know, like, right. um, you know, there's been an essay that I've wanted to write for a while about th- this idea of like the infinite canvas of like what happens when you don't have a bounded box yeah. of yeah. art, but you have this kind of per- variable size thing. And I see flashes of that in so many different. Right yeah avenues of the world and like so i've just been like kind of gathering my little nuts right. and berries yeah. to like make that essay and making sure that i feel like it's actually something that should be put out into the world i think the same thing is true of like i'm like really interested right now in like face swap like and like all oh, yeah. the kind of things that that snapchat's doing and trying to think a little bit about have we seen face swap before, and yeah. did it fulfill a similar cultural need? And I think actually it does. Like when you think about Muhammad Ali and Saint Simeon, and like the kind of idea of like a, yeah. a, a Ali Renaissance painting face swap, and the, the jolt of identity that that gives you, that kind of like caffeinated jolt yeah. of, of, of of sort of difference. Right. Um, and I think I think that's like that that Snapchat is really doing something similar with, with these sort of introductions into culture. And I actually, you know, I think that some social networks play a role of that rock bands played, you know. Oh, interesting. You know, yeah. that they're, they're, they're things that are shared by a youth culture for a period of time right. and then kind of aren't don't belong to the next youth culture. Yeah, And so in an age of, in the networked age, like mass culture becomes networked culture on a mass scale. Right. Like, you know, and so, yeah. I, I think that's like the perfect way to kind of like sum up all of this. And,
0: and, and it's a great way to kind of just say why I've always been so drawn to your writing is that it isn't commenting on everything, but it, it like, you know, looking all the way back, look through the Lined and Aligned archives, it's always this kind of like one step removed, looking at it in this kind of wider picture, and saying like, what does this mean for us now? Where have we seen this before, and where could it go? And I feel like that's kind of like this recurring um, theme in all of your writing, and it is something that I'm very attracted to, and and that I strive to. So thank you, uh, you know, for, writing <laughs> and and thanks for for uh, this conversation absolutely yeah yeah I'm, yeah this episode was recorded on june 24th 2016 in new york city our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter at surface podcast and you can find us on itunes and soundcloud and at scratching the thanks for listening